This morning we come to concluding our series on the Lord's Supper. We have taken a brief break for some of you who are visiting this morning. We've been working through the book of Hebrews as a church family for a portion of time now. And we've taken a brief break there for about four weeks now to address the Lord's Supper. We come full circle this morning by conclusion, but really our conclusion is in a way uh, where it all got started for us as, a, uh, as ministers, thinking of our church family in the Lord's Supper, thinking about the way in which the Lord's Supper is to be rightly administered. We have been thinking of this in discussion on it probably somewhere since about February. As we began to continue to think and to plot a course biblically forward on the administration or the distribution of the Lord's elements, we started to think, as we approach this in conviction, as a matter of conviction of how the Lord's Supper ought to be distributed properly, that is, as we would see it, most biblically, portraying the text of Scripture itself, getting as close as we can to what we would see taking place in the instructions that the Lord has given us about how the elements of the supper are to be rightly distributed. We thought, well, you know, as we approach this particular, we ought to just step back and deal with the entire picture of the Lord's Supper as we have not really had opportunity with the body at Redeemer, or perhaps we have neglected opportunity at the, with the body at Redeemer. However, that does shake out either way. See, all that to say, we have not really spoken about the Lord's Supper here at Redeemer and that in a, a theological way. So, we covered two of the three sermons so far. As I said, this morning will be our last time together speaking about the Lord's Supper. The first sermon was about the proper significance of the Lord's Supper. That is, It is a means of grace for God's people. We come to this table as needy people. It is a unilateral work. That is where God, who is the gracious, benevolent Father, and Christ, our benevolent Redeemer, provides for our weak faith. We receive it as beneficiaries. We don't pay merits to come. We look to Christ in faith as faith's true object. And it is He, the person of Jesus Christ, who justifies those who look to Him by faith. So we come needing assurance needing to be strengthened, having that weakness supplied with strength that we don't have within ourselves. We don't come to the gospel and say, I just need a little bit more because I really have this month's strength. I'm really doing decent, but my tank is this big. My own strength is this big, and now I just need Jesus to make up the difference. We come with empty jars, There is no, like, okay amount from us to meet our needs. We come as fully weak in need of a Savior. He then supplies 
Not because we paid, but because we looked with faith. And he richly and abundantly fills our need with himself. The way in which he regularly does this for the people of God is through his supper. So we looked at the proper significance of the Lord's Supper. It is more than a memorial. Secondly, we looked at the proper function of examination. That was last week as we think about the object of one's examination. Again, we have to be careful in examination as we do discern the body. A man does examine himself to find if Christ is the object of his faith. Are you a believer? Have you looked away from self and unto Christ who is portrayed in this meal? Let a man examine himself. Is Christ and Christ alone the object of your faith? It isn't after properly paying enough penance through a few quiet moments looking deep within or in a type of spiritual navel gaze. We then have somehow paid enough penance for two or three good long minutes with our eyes closed to then approach because we paid our debt by being quiet for a moment and looking internal to see is there enough fruits in my basket to sufficiently merit my going forward to partake of this sacramental meal? Let a man examine himself isn't a call to navel-gazing and merit-paying. It is let a man examine himself yet again to see is my faith squarely in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ alone? Or do I come and what I am actually doing is not what the apostle would recognize as participating in the Lord's Supper at all? Because I come with no regard to him who is portrayed to me in the meal. I'm here just getting in line with everybody else because I don't want it to be awkward that I'm not getting in line. Let a man examine himself and flee to Christ. These two portions of properly thinking through and handling the theological significance of the Lord's Supper was really due, as I said, this was really due. We thought, let's start at the beginning and again, lay a foundation, and then we build into the second piece and we go to the third. I don't know if anybody else can hear the symphony upstairs, the music playing. Maybe I'm the only one. Either way, let's persevere. Our neighbor practices whenever it is fitting for him to practice, and he's all in all, as far as I can tell, a good neighbor, and uh, we are too, so let's just be neighborly. And we'll continue to persevere here this morning. So from proper significance to proper function, this was due to a growing concern really from, again, basically a timeline to from February is this consideration that Dan and I were giving, Pastor Dan and I were giving to the proper administration. I would like to handle the sermon this morning in two parts. The first part is to address the proper administration of the Lord's Supper. That's what's really um, at issue here is the proper administration and distribution of the Lord's Supper. The second portion of our time together will be a brief note on Redeemer's history regarding the Lord's table and uh, some of the changes that we're making this morning. Perhaps you are looking here and you recognize there's a couple of changes taking place here. 
uh, the, the, the uh, utensils here or the instruments here of distribution have given away my conclusion, but if you'll just pretend like you haven't seen them, I'm about to give you the conclusion, but I'd like if you and I together would, would work our way toward the conclusion, though it's foregone. So, come back. We could have tossed a blanket over or something. I think you'd all see the same two lumps and recognize what's going on. Either way, let's pretend it's not foregone, and let's rightly work through the text to see why this conclusion is what we would feel is most fitting and portraying the text or following the instructions of the text regarding how the Lord's Supper is to be distributed and administered. The approach I want to take this morning is answer two uh, or, or three questions regarding the administration of Lord's Supper. I'll jump right into question number one. Question number one is this, who can properly administer the Lord's Supper? Okay, so we're, we're, we're working through who can do this, who can, and when I use the term administer, I'm referring to he who oversees this supper. The question is, to your mind, can my neighbor, um, can I at home administer it to myself? And, and so, so as we want to approach it properly, we're asking the question, who then can properly administer or oversee the Lord's Supper? Who can do this? Well, if you would turn with me uh, back a few chapters, I think Caleb had us all for uh, the beginning portion in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. If you'd go back with me just to chapter 4, I'd like to look at verse 1 and 2 before we come back to chapter 11, but chapter 4 will really help us answer the question, who can rightly or properly administer the Lord's Supper? I'll read verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians quickly, and then we'll just kind of see the two kind of obvious pieces here about what Paul is saying regarding pastors or those in the ministry of the Word. Um, Verse 1 begins, this is how one should regard us. So from apostolic here, you'd go to Ephesians, you'd recognize how Christ is building his church, the apostles then, to those who were faithful, as Timothy also is instructed to uh, entrust doctrine and teaching and administration to those who are faithful men who would then carry on this ministry of the word. This is how one should regard us. So all of us, this, those men in the ministry, that would be those properly considered now to be pastors among the people of God. How one should regard us as, and he says two things here about how we ought to view ministers or pastors. That is, one, they're servants of Christ, and two, they're stewards of the mystery of of God. Moreover, in this ministry or pastorship or ministry of Christ, these men are to be found trustworthy men as related to their office. So there's two things that stand out here, how we ought to view pastors or those in the ministry. They are, number one, servants of Christ. That's pretty straightforward. They're ministers who serve the work of Christ. That's what they're doing. If you were to describe who is a pastor or what is essentially the nature of a pastor's ministry, he is, you would say, on an exam or for your own sake, you would say he is, according to 1 Corinthians 4, he stands out as one who is a servant of Christ. That is, he serves the work of Christ being subject to the authority of Christ. That's kind of the first foot forward of who he is. 
along with that, as a servant doing the work of Christ, not his own work or building his own kingdom, but he is a servant of the kingdom of Christ. He is a steward of the mysteries of God. That is, his very office of pastor is bound up into the stewardship of the mysteries of God. That mystery that we would recognize throughout the New Testament, as Paul speaks elsewhere in Ephesians, also would be that of the gospel. He is a steward of the gospel. This is where we begin to build. We're asking the question, right? Right now we are asking the question, who can properly administer the Lord's table? The ministry of a pastor is necessarily bound up with his faithfulness in preaching. Do you see that in verse 2? Moreover, it is required of these stewards, of stewards, those are servants of Christ, those who are the stewards of the mysteries of the gospel, that they be found trustworthy. Some of your translations might say faithful. Faithful to what? The mysteries. Faithful to Christ in the administration of their duties. Preaching the gospel. That is the mysteries of God. What are they? They are not ministries of concealment, but they are ministries of, or excuse me, mysteries of proclamation. The proclamation of Christ from your pastors is twofold. Do you remember the end? I'll give yet again a point of conclusion away at the end of uh, the text that's typically read there in 1 Corinthians 11. I believe we'll read it again today, or, or maybe we already have, and that's sufficient. At the end of uh, chapter 11 is that you do what until the Lord comes in taking of the Lord's Supper? You proclaim His death until He comes. The proclamation ministry of pastors, that of which they steward, that of which they belong and must faithfully execute, is a proclamation ministry, which is twofold. Number one, it is the preached word. That is, they proclaim the word of the Lord. That, that, that's the, the duties of their office. They must be trustworthy. They must be faithful. To do what? To proclaim the word of the Lord. For Christ is heard through the word. And as As the word does penetrate what is created by the power of the Spirit through that proclamation, Paul tells us Romans 10, faith is created through the proclamation of the truth. So Christ is heard through the word. But the proclamation does not end there. Remember, stewards of the mysteries of God, that which proclamation through the preached word, Christ is heard. And the proclamation through the Lord's table, Christ is seen. The proclamation ministry is twofold. One of preaching and one of administering the Lord's table. It is a necessary appendage to the preached word. He is heard through the proclamation of the word. He is seen in the proclamation Of the table. This belongs to who? We're asking the question who then can rightly administer the table? 
It is those who are charged as stewards of the ministry of the word who are also charged with the ministry of the sacraments. I ask you then in my brief explanation of who it is to ask yourself, can my neighbor? The answer to that, I hope, for you by now, is no. Your neighbor cannot. And you cannot by staying home and eating whatever piece you'd like of Cheez-Its would be my choice or whatever your choice would be. Have I then, by faith, laid hold of Christ that he has as I sat here and stared at my Jesus? He has been, I rehearse, broken for me. Therefore, I am rogue, without authority, without the need of the church, and I don't need church. I just need Jesus, and I'm outside that of the authority of elders, that of the congregation of the collective people of God. I just feed myself the sacrament as I stare at it long enough, and I tell myself, this is his body broken for me. No. Well, I'll just have somebody else then say it and rehearse it for me. No, those, according to 1 Corinthians 4, who possess that right among the people of God to then rightfully and obediently administer the table are those who are also charged with preaching the word. These two things go together, for he is heard in one and our Lord is seen through the other. The answer to the question is, again, elders in the ministry of the word are also ministers of the sacrament, for the two belong together. Number two, this brings us to our second question of what really is driving all of this is the question, what then is proper distribution of the Lord's Supper? So who can administer? That would be elders in the ministry of the word are also elders in the ministry of sacrament, for the two belong together. And the next question is, what is proper distribution? For that, if you would please follow me to chapter 11 then. Let's look at chapter 11. As we move then to chapter 11, zero in on verse 26. To kind of mine out this question, what is proper distribution of the Lord's Supper? So administration, I'm using the term administer as those who preside over. Those who, in the authority of Christ, are rightful uh, administers, those who preside over the table. Distribution now is going to be the elements that are distributed. That is how it goes out or how one partakes of it. So what, so who elders, what is proper distribution of the Lord's table being rightly presided over? Verse 26, if you're there in chapter 11, answers, I think, the question for us uh, Quite precisely, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread, and you you see there, and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This text here has been the subject of our consideration, like I said, uh, as, as pastors here since about February. It stands out as a bit obvious, having looked at it since about February, some point, but I'll get to that in a moment. What is proper distribution, then, you'd ask yourself, looking at this text, what is proper distribution of the Lord's Supper? It is a proper distribution of the Lord's table, is a distribution that clearly identifies the bread and the wine, 
as separate substances. That would be proper distribution. Do this and this. A rightful then carrying out of the Lord's table would be a rightful proper distribution that clearly identifies the bread and the wine as separate substances as far as the body and the blood of the Lord are also separate substances. This is my body. This is my blood. These separate substances are to be observed as separate acts in the covenant meal. Eat, we would all recognize, that's eating. Bread and drink this cup. We'd all recognize that is drinking. Making eating and drinking one move. We have come to the conviction is not the most accurate portrayal of this supper. I'll make a brief note on the side here. This is one in the margins, quickly. We would not um, say that, again, one is necessarily, I don't think, at anyone saying that the one is necessarily disobedient to the text. But again, it's an issue of what I opened up with about four weeks ago now, and I know you remember my introduction. I talked about how, again, we all appreciate the big idea, but however, the big idea is enhanced by its finer pieces as we come to know them. It gives clarity and conviction even to the bigger picture as we grasp its smaller working parts. So again, uh, we would see the big picture is the Lord's Supper being administered or distributed as one would take bread, dip it in a cup, and eat it, as in what we would say is kind of eating, drinking. Would we say that's disobedient? No. But we'd say that we'd say the big picture is working, but then if we look, it's further enhanced. The meal of what is a grace to us is further enhanced as we keenly mine out the distinctions at work. These separate substances are to be observed, as you can see here, as separate acts in the one unified covenantal meal. This is my third question. This moves us to our third question. So question number one, who can do this? Elders can rightly preside over. Those entrusted with the ministry of the word are also those who are entrusted with the ministry of sacrament for the two work together. What is proper distribution? That which recognizes separate substances as separate acts of consumption. And number three, why is proper distribution of the Lord's Supper so important? Right, Because we're moving all along. Things are working logistically. Um, we're rejoicing as one another. I think some of the sweetest times at Redeemer, uh, for me and I know for Dan, as we have discussed them, has been a, uh, a grace for us in ministry, has been our time with you around the Lord's table. So it kind of comes to a point where you think, okay, this is working and it's a blessing, and many comment to us about their joy in it as well, of our time around it, not particularly how it's administered, but just they've, they've been sweet times at our church, in our church family. So 
uh, if, the, if the ball is rolling, why is it so necessary to kind of break it apart and kind of look at it afresh and consider it again? The answer is, that is the question, why is proper distribution of Lord's Supper so important? The answer is this, correct theology is being communicated through a correct distribution of the elements. That's why. Um, if there is, again, as we opened up four weeks ago, when we come to the Lord's table, the obvious statement in that is He, that is our Savior, is Lord of the table. So even if something seems to kind of work and seems to create a, a sense of heightened awareness about that which you are participating in, it doesn't automatically equal right, fully, conclusively perfect, because it's giving us this sort of a return. You have to still consider the text because correct theology is being communicated through correct distribution. Therefore, missing that correct distribution, maybe let's say it's like this. The picture is like this and it's, when it's working. Boom. And then not the exact right corrections would make it like this. Right? So it's not like distorted like this. It's like, oh, this is clearly not the Lord's Supper. It, it, but, but it's just missing its perfect balanced picture. A correct theology is being communicated through the correct distribution of the elements. I, I want to mine this out just for a brief moment. We cannot separate, as Dan mentioned last week, I want to kind of mine out this correct theology being communicated. How is it being communicated then? Or what is the correct theology being communicated in separating the elements? We must not separate the sign from the things signified. Consider the bread. That is, when I say sign and things signified, let me be clear. What we mean, as Dan had mentioned last week, the sign or symbol, that is this piece of bread, right? This is a sign. It's an outward and a physical element that is speaking to, representing an internal, inward, spiritual work, signified. So sign, bread, thing signified. Sign, physical, external, signification. The reality that has occurred is internal, spiritual, Sign and things signified. We cannot separate the two in a way that someone cannot see in this sign. They cannot lay hold or comprehend the thing being signified. That is, consider this with the bread. The bread is a sign. It is a sign, and this is the key piece here, of its own unto the body of Christ. So, sign unto its own of the body of Christ. Do you see where we're going? So, so, so sign unto its own. If we say it's a sign, and now we've mixed signs then we've somewhat conflated the two into one. But we're saying that the sign and the thing signified must remain. We cannot blend them. We need to keep them so that by promise we lay hold that's held, the promise that's held out by each of them. Bread. 
is a thing signing, the thing signified, which is the body of the Lord, which is held out to us in promise. Look at verse, um, to consider the promise held out to us, look at verse 23. What's the promise? Notice it. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. Here's our sign of the thing signified. Verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, here is the signification, this is my body. Now look at the promise. This is my body which is for you. It is a sign unto its own of the body of the Lord which is held out to us in promise that it is for me. That's what we're holding in the bread, the sign of the body of the Lord which was broken for me. Paul said in chapter 11 just prior, or excuse me, chapter 10, if you look there in verse 14, right before I move forward, just to remind us of a couple of weeks ago, verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? By taking the sign in faith, we are participants in the thing being signified, which is the body of the Lord held out to us in promise. We cannot separate them, and we cannot conflate them. Consider also the cup. The cup is a sign of its own. Unto the blood of Christ, which signifies. What is the promise held out to me in this sign? What does it correspond to? I don't have a sign in isolation. I have a sign of of the thing being signified. I'm taking this physical, outward, external element that feeds me, nourishes me, reminds me, calls to remembrance. The thing being signified is where I rest. What is being signified? What has been provided me and now assigned to me in this cup? It is the once and for all forgiveness of my sin and reconciliation with God provided for me by the blood of Christ alone. That's what is the thing signified. That's the reality. I partake of this sign to the thing signified in promise that his blood was shed for me. And I am there, my faith is so nourished, 
and refreshed and affirmed that I am his and he is mine. As my faith feasts upon the Lord in the table. A brief note on Redeemer's history. For some of you, some of you this will make sense too. Some of this perhaps not. It's a piece of information either way. A brief note on Redeemer's history. Pastor Dan and I grew to a very strong conviction of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. That again, it is not a reward for the strong, but it is a meal for the weak, which is every one of us in here. Knowing that our faith was so nourished, strengthened, persevered, affirmed by Christ through this meal, there were two things that stuck out to us as we considered church planting and the life of Redeemer. We wanted to heighten the awareness of our time around the Lord's table. This is something we don't plan on ever making any changes to. We must heighten, Dan and I thought, the awareness around the Lord's table. What did this mean? How would we heighten it for God's people? We would slow down and we would savor it as a church family. I've told this story perhaps a couple of times, but I remember when I was a young kid, maybe, you know, 16, 17, 18. (laughs) I would still, even at that age, um, show up on a Sunday night, and uh, I would walk in the way that our church was set up, the church that I grew up in. um, It had an atrium, and the atrium to separate, you know, the loud people from the quiet people in the, in, in the worship area. We need, like, a huge atrium. Um, uh, in, in that place, you could see the glass. Through the glass, you could see the sanctuary area. And, you know, you'd, you'd come in through the doors, and you'd be uh, meeting and greeting your friends and so on and so forth. And then you'd see to the left, kind of hear these big glass uh, window pictures, kind of picture windows. And you saw, the table is out, the cloth is over, I roll. We're going to be here an extra 25 minutes. That was, for me, how I cherished the Lord's Supper, recognizing uh, the bill had come due. We were here, this must be our bi-monthly time to spend 25 extra minutes at church today. A bit of a bummer. Perhaps it's part of that that the Lord used in my life as he began to reveal to me the significance of what he had actually performed and what he has continued to supply for his people through the table. And then growing in that, thinking of an opportunity to set a particular record or an ethos at a local church and be a part of spearheading that with another, it was the table that became a significant piece of heightening for God's people. If we look at it and we think, okay, the elements are out, we're here longer, we've missed everything. We must slow down and savor. For Christ has spoken so clearly in his word that his people will be nourished and the church will be unified as he has rightly seen in the table and heard in his word. Second portion for us of our brief history, what that led to then at Redeemer, 
recognizing the importance of the unity within the supper meal. Again, maybe it's uh, kind of revealing about me and maybe my history a little bit. We all have different elements within our uh, lives theologically or maybe practically or in all areas where uh, you might pretend to be above this, but you're not. And that is that there's a bit of reaction that takes place in all of our lives. Um, God graciously uses that positively and then sometimes uses it in a way to correct and drive back into humility and different ebbs and flows of life as we kind of sensory take in all that we have experienced growing up or not experienced growing up. And those tend to become out front and center parts of our person or our workplace or our relationships or our ministries. And again, growing up, it was kind of like the ceremony we went through and then you eat the bread and you drink the cup and then you go your ways and there's not a sense of coming together. And again, if the meal is so critical to all of us, and it's not just a vertical individual piety, but there is a horizontal element that we are united to Christ, we are united one with another, then we ought to slow down and consider one another. This is the rebuke of 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. We must slow down. So to heighten the unity Dan and I thought rightfully so, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10, there is a single loaf of bread. So for us, we wanted it to be a single loaf that everyone recognizes in this single loaf, there is but one body who is Christ's, and there is but one body who is his church, and they all eat from one loaf. There's unity in the meal. It, it, it brings about a call to repentance of broken relationships, things that have gotten skewed and out of manner. This is a, a faith-nourishing compass. It's a corrective. It's a call to the church to come. And remember, I don't hate that person. Actually, I can't hate that person. They're in the one lump, the one loaf. I'm in the loaf. This is the Lord who is our loaf. This is a call for me to see them and them see me and us see each other. That's what it is. Whatever you're doing before you consider that wasn't the Lord's table, Paul says. It calls us to the Lord and to one another. To come in, do your personal part, and then walk out is to miss the significance of the meal. So we thought, it's got to be one loaf. So I think initially we passed a single loaf and there was like five of us at a church. We just passed a single loaf and people tore off pieces. And I think quickly it was like, we're not going to keep doing it that way, I don't think. Um, but we know that we have, to, we have to maintain this correct theology that's being communicated to a, th- a correct distribution of the elements. So it is one loaf. I think this morning it's going to be a gluten-free option. <laughs> Because there is, within all of us, there is the sense where there's deference. There's some of us who are glutens and others who are non-glutens. So we'll defer to the non-glutens and we'll just all eat from the same loaf. I always not like, hey, there's a card over here and a card over there and a card over there. Whichever loaf you like, eat that loaf. There's a French, an Italian, and a gluten-free option. There's one loaf. 
well, what about all the gluten-free people? Well, then we'll just eat their bread so that we can eat from one loaf because there is but one body. You think it, doesn't, it does matter. It does matter. And then the other element is kind of where we moved also. There is but one cup. There is one Lord and there is one cup. So as we considered it to heighten this sense of unity, there was a piece taken from a single loaf and then it was dumped into a single cup and it was consumed. And thinking about what was right in that picture is that heightened sense of unity. There is but one Lord. There is but one blood that was shed sufficiently for the sins of his people. And we are but one body who share in that one Lord. There is but one cup. As you continue to mine out the text, however, you do recognize in Luke 22, I believe it is, is the, is the chapter in my mind, Luke 22, where the Lord did indeed um, distribute the cup. Then you get to the New Testament where Paul picks up on the instructions of the meal and you recognize there are these, wait a minute, there are these separating elements where there is an eating and a drinking. A, not eating, drinking. So we're making a correction because it matters. Again, is it not being done truly by God's people where it is done differently? No. But we just answer for us. And so we think if that's what we see in the text, wait a minute, I'm the Lord of the table. No, you're not. It's the Lord's table. So then we think, what is the closest conformity to the text? Would be eat and drink as one. Does it matter? I conclude just with this little paragraph, and then we'll eat and drink together. This will be of no small importance for understanding the nature of the sacraments. For they contain promises by which consciences may be roused up to an assurance of salvation. Hence it follows that they are not merely outward signs of professions before men, but are inwardly too helps of faith. Let us be nourished. Let's pray. Father, help our weak faith as we look yet again to examine that we are yours and you are ours. Let our faith 